Now, I read an article uh, the other week about um, a woman uh, called Alex Miller a few years ago, um, and she owned a house in a sort of nice area of um, a suburb of Philadelphia in America, and she had a roommate um, who uh, paid to sort of rent out a room in the house who moved out, and she needed to find a new um, roommate in order to cover her mortgage. Uh, so she put a, an advertisement out, and a couple of weeks after advertising, um, a man got in touch. Um, he was 60 years old, um, a, a lawyer, and he moving back to the area uh, to, to deal with his elderly parent. And uh, he came over, um, and they got on really well. Um, he seemed like a, a really sort of nice guy. Um, he was able to pay, uh, I think, the first month, or it might have been even the first couple of months' rent, like up front. Um, which she needed, and um, she thought, oh, I've really got lucky here to find somebody who's um, sort of not trying to rip me off, like respectable person, able to pay, um, and he moved in. And um, for the first few weeks, everything seemed to go fine. He seemed to be a very sort of considerate um, roommate. He sort of was fairly quiet, just sort of uh, got on with his own business. And then a couple of like unusual things started to happen in that um, Alex came back from work one day and tried to turn the lights on and the living room light bulbs had gone um, and she asked him about that and he'd taken them from the living room and put them into his room um, and he said well look this part of the like the, the rental agreement is that you're providing um, I don't know some certain uh, regulations say you need to provide this so uh, my light bulbs are gone so I'll just take them out and she thought it was a bit unusual but yeah she thought fair enough um, then she um, came home one day and the, the dining chairs had all gone um, and she asked him about it and he'd taken them and sort of broken them down and made them into a desk in his room um, and she sort of said like what's this about and he said well if you I'll refer you to the sort of uh, legal code of like what landlords are supposed to produce and provide and like you didn't provide me with this and so I've done so that's a bit unusual um, and then um, when it got to the next month, the, the rent, like he didn't pay the rent and she asked him about it. He said, oh, I'm, I'm not paying the rent this month because um, if you refer to the tenancy arrangements of such and such regulations that you are supposed to provide this, but there was a cigarette butt left in an ashtray or something in the kitchen, which violates this. And so I'm not paying me rent this month. And then she thought, well, this is getting a bit weird, but well, fair enough. Um, but then the next month there was something else where he wouldn't pay. And then the next month there was something else. And then he, he was just getting weirder and weirder. He, he wasn't, um, she wouldn't ever see him. He would just be always in his room. Um, and then during the day, he'd be going around and like moving things around while she was out at work. And it was getting pretty bad. And so she sort of tried to um, ask him to leave. And he said, no, she, she'd have to evict him. So she filed like legal proceedings um, to start evicting him. But he was familiar with all the regulations. So he filed a counterclaim. It was just dragging on for, for months and months. Uh, so much so that like she was feeling I'm gonna have to leave it was her house which she's gonna have to leave and she was at just one point like crying and saying well why are you doing this she was like look you've got nothing to worry about you're young you've got your full life ahead of you you've got this lovely house oh no you haven't this is my house now um, as she as she walked out and it sort of went on and eventually he did have to move out because it was her house um, but it turned out this guy wasn't he was going under an, like an assumed name his actual name was Jameson Batchman and he'd been doing this over and over again. Um, he'd done it to loads of people, like similar stories over and over again. He'd go in, he'd seem like a great guy. Um, he'd then sort of start behaving weirdly and then start to force you the person out. And they'd try and get him evicted. And then he knew enough about the system to sort of just really like slow that process down and drag it. And then eventually, like because the other person owned the house, 
it would get to a point where he would have to move out and he'd just like go to the next person and, and do it. Um, it's on, it's featured in a, a Netflix true crime series, which um, the other episodes look really scary, so I don't watch it. Um, but the, uh, because the others have serial killers in, this was like the best story, I think. So I, I hope that's not a spoiler to anybody who was going to watch it. Um, but anyway, um, just the reason why I told you that story is just to try and like, as you think about it, like how does that make you feel? Because as I read it, I just thought this is like outrageous. Like I felt so sorry for the person whose house it was because everything seemed fine and then this guy's just sort of coming in doing this stuff and like there was no way to stop him but what he's doing is um, outrageous it probably makes you feel like angry at the the injustice of it but it's not just the injustice it's like there's something like nasty about it there's like a betrayal element in that he's gained their trust and then he's uh, sort of turned um, turned against her and that story just um when I read it, it just reminded me of the parable that we're going to look at today. We're in a series at Grace Church um, looking at some of the parables, some of the stories that Jesus uh, told. And we're coming here to the second one out of a group of three that Jesus told against the religious leaders. Um, so he's telling these parables in response to being challenged by uh, the religious leaders. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's just read the parable. So it's in Matthew 21, uh, starting at verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builder rejected, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So this is one of those parables, and this is probably being true of a few that we've read over the last couple of weeks, where the, the point of the story is immediately obvious. So you've got this guy who's built this vineyard and he's, he's rented it to these tenants, these farmers, um, and they have totally failed in their role. They're supposed to be working for him, but instead they try and uh, through a series of different situations, try and take the vineyard for themselves. It's not just that they've failed like, to carry out their job, but they're actively working. Like, it, it would almost be, well, it would be better if they were just doing a poor job, but they're actually working against the owner. So it's not just a breach of their contract, um, they, they're also betraying that trust that he's given them. They want the fruit for themselves, so when he sends messengers to get the harvest, well, they beat up the first one, and then the second one they kill, the third one they stone. 
they want to keep the fruit from themselves. The contract presumably was that they work the land and then there's some sort of payment, maybe they keep part of the harvest and they send the rest to him. But whatever it is, they're just thinking, we're going to keep all of this. Um, and so they reject the messengers. And then the um, owner finally sends his son and thinks, well, they haven't listened to the messengers, like they'll listen to my son because he's got a bit more authority on my behalf. But when they see the son, they don't think, oh, we've got to fall into line. Now they think, right, he's our chance. This is the guy who this field really belongs to, this vineyard really belongs to, because when the owner's gone, it's, he's going to inherit it. So if we kill him now, then we've got the vineyard. And that's what they do. The point of the story is totally clear. Their behaviour is completely outrageous. The owner is unbelievably patient, if you think about it, because really, when he sends the first messenger and they beat him up, really, at that stage, you'd think, well, why isn't he just going and, like, turfing them out? Um, why isn't he getting the vineyard back? But he's very patient. He sends another messenger. He sends a third. He sends his son. Their behaviour doesn't get any better due to the owner's patience. It actually gets worse. There wasn't really any dispute here. It's not a conflict between two people, and you can sort of see both sides to it. They were employees. It was totally clear that the rightful owner was this other person who's gone away, and they were under a contract to, to carry out a task. Um, they weren't the owners. It didn't belong to them. The owner had done all the work. It says at the start, he digs the well. He builds a watchtower. He puts the wall around it. He does all of that stuff. He plants the, the vines. Everything in there belonged to him. That was completely his. But they came along and they rejected his ownership. They rejected his authority. They're essentially stealing his stuff. That's what they're doing. Even though everything there is his, none of it belongs to them. They reject his ownership and they want to steal his stuff. And so then what's the consequence? Well, Jesus gets to the end and then he turns to the crowds for the answer. He's like, well, what's going to happen when the owner does come back? And their answer um, is, where is it? In verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They obviously love the word wretch there. Um, they're, they're clear that they're, like, th these people in the story are wretches. Like, it's obvious to the crowds. It's like, oh man, it's, this is terrible. What's going to happen when the owner comes back? He's going to sort them out. He's going to bring them to a wretched end. He then says, they then say, well, he's going to then find other tenants that are going to actually do the, do the job he's given them to do. He'll give them his share of the crop at harvest time. The consequence of the tenant's rejection of the owner is that they'll be judged, they'll be punished, they'll come to this wretched end, and then they'll be replaced with people who will actually do the job that they'd agreed to do. Well, that's the story that Jesus tells. These tenants, these farmers have behaved outrageously. And everybody listening to the parable knows, yeah, when the owner comes back, he's going to get shot of them like they need punishing and he's going to bring people in who will actually do what he wanted them to do in the first place. Now, Jesus then applies this to the religious leaders. As I said, this is the second out of three parables that Jesus tells in response to the religious leaders challenging his authority. So Jesus has gone in to Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple. He's turned over tables and said the people are... Um, ripping people off in the temple rather than it being a, a house of prayer. And the religious leaders then come to Jesus and challenge his authority, essentially saying, like, who are you to be saying this? And Jesus tells, in response, three parables of this. This is the second. And he addresses them directly in verse 43 in his little explanation. 
Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking about the religious leaders there. The kingdom of God's going to be taken away from you. In the same way that this uh, vineyard's going to be taken away from those farmers, the kingdom of God's going to be taken away from you. They know that he's speaking about them. It says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard it, they knew he was talking about them. They are the farmers. They are the tenants. That's why Jesus is telling the story. Now, the imagery of a, like a vineyard to represent God's people is, is common throughout the, the Bible. It refers to God sort of planting like his people, like planting these plants and then uh, tending to them, caring for them, getting them to grow. There's a similar sort of um, parable or a phrasing or story used at the start of Isaiah chapter 5, which I'll just read a bit about uh, just to, so you can get the feel for it. So Isaiah chapter 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile, fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. They are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So that's very, very similar to this um, story that Jesus is telling. And there it's saying, like, look, God's planted this vineyard. He's cared for it. He's dug, he's dug out um, the wine press. He's, planted, he's built the watchtower, the same as the owner did here. He's cared for the vines. And there, the criticism that Isaiah is bringing to the people is that they're producing bad, bad fruits. He's looking for righteousness. Their behavior is unrighteous. He's looking for justice, but they're shedding blood of people. They're not living a righteous lifestyle. And that's his criticism there about the bad fruit of the vines. When Jesus starts telling this story and saying, oh, there was an owner, dug a wine press, the people are familiar with that. They're thinking, oh, yeah, this is um, God planting his people, blessing the nation of Israel. And so then the tables are turned when it's not that these vines are producing bad fruit. It's that the farmers are bad. The tenants are bad in this situation. The people who've been put in charge, they're the ones who are doing it bad, they're doing the wrong thing in this situation. It's the priests, it's the religious leaders, it's the Pharisees. They're doing exactly the same thing as the tenants in here. They're standing there questioning Jesus' authority. They're challenging the authority of the person who everything belongs to. It's like almost ridiculous that the owner is sending these messengers and the tenants are saying, no, like beating one up, stoning another, turn them away. Because none of that stuff there is, it belongs to them. And that's exactly the same situations as the Pharisees and religious leaders are coming up to Jesus saying, what authority have you got to do this? Like, he's got all the authority in the world. Like everything belongs to him. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. And they're saying, hang on, uh, how can you say this? You haven't got the authority to do this. In the same way that the tenants have uh, rejected messenger after messenger, um, the religious leaders have got a history of poor treatment of the prophets rejecting God's word. 
most recently in this sort of story, the, the rejection of John the Baptist. And now, what's happened? Well, the same has happened in the, the vineyard. The son's turned up. Jesus, the son of God's turned up. And just like the tenants, they think, oh, we want him out of the picture. It even says at the end, they want to arrest him. They want to get him out of there. The only reason why they don't do it right then is because they're afraid of the crowd. Jesus says that this parable is about them and he applies it in verse 42 by bringing in um, some different imagery about a stone. He says, have you never read in the scriptures, and this is from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. The term that's translated cornerstone there refers to um, a, a stone that they would replace on the top of a corner of a building uh, where the walls sort of come together. It's considered to be a piece of the building that was totally essential to the integrity of that structure to holding it all together. And here they're saying, oh, there's a stone that the builders have rejected, but that, that's the cornerstone, that's the, the, the stone that's in, essential to holding everything together. There's a bit of a play on words here that the word sun and the word stone are similar um, in the language that Jesus is speaking. And he's relating, oh, he's the, he's the, the sun that came to the, uh, to the vineyard and was uh, killed. The most important person came and they, uh, they, they killed him. He is this stone that's the most important stone and the builders are rejecting it. Just like the tenants... Um, those religious leaders, uh, the managers, the stewards, the, the workers, the servants of, of God, not owners, they don't own the people. The only authority they have is what's being given to them by God. Everything belongs to God, nothing's theirs. But, just like the tenants, they're trying to get the benefits of God's stuff without recognising his authority. They want all the stuff, they just don't want him. And then, he's Jesus, the son coming along. And they want him eliminated to secure their own position. Their behaviour is even more outrageous than the behaviour of the tenants in the story, which is pretty outrageous to begin with. God appointed people to care for his people, lead his people, and what they're doing, they're trying to usurp his authority. And so what will, their, like, what will the consequences be of their actions? It's exactly the same as the tenants. Judgment and replacement, he says in verse 43. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So Jesus tells this story, it's outrageous, and he says to the religious leaders, like, this is what you are doing, and this is what's going to happen, the same thing is going to happen to you. So just to finish then, let's think about, well, what's that got to do with us? Like, it's interesting to see that that's what they were doing and that's what Jesus was saying to them. But how does it apply to us? Well, first of all, for sort of people um, in leadership of churches, there's loads of examples of people trying to profit financially or gain status or power or reputation, people working for their own glory instead of God's in positions of leadership. And it's a warning to, to anybody like myself who, who, who's um, in any position of leadership uh, to not be like, to not fall into this same trap. But for leaders or for anybody, this, is, this explains the root of all our sin. Everything we have belongs to God. Everything we've got has been given to us by God. 
He's given those gifts for us to steward, to manage, to look after, in the same way that the tenants were given the, the vineyard to, to cultivate. That includes our money, other physical possessions, relationships, job, knowledge, skills, abilities. He's given us those things. Everything we have is from him. And he's given us the job, like those tenants, of sort of cultivating them, using those gifts for the reasons he's given us them. Now, that's not like a weary sort of drudgery sort of task. Like part of doing it, part of stewardship is enjoying the gifts he's given us. We'll find we enjoy them as we use them for the gifts, he, for the reasons he's given us them. But it's always under his authority because it is stuff. We belong to him. Everything about us belongs to him. And the root of what sin is, is looking at those gifts, grabbing onto them and trying to like hold the person who has the authority at arm's length, trying to climb up onto the throne ourselves. Acting like the owner, not the, the manager or the farmer or the, the caretaker, like these people were. That's the root of sin, that we want God's stuff, but we don't want him. Exactly the same as these tenants did. So we want his gifts, but we, we, we don't want the gift of knowing him. We want the relationships, but we shun the relationship with him. We're just praying, asking God to give us stuff rather than to um, relate to him and engage with him. We're holding him at arm's length because he seems like a threat to our lifestyle and the things we like. He's the one who gives us the things that we like. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, isn't that we get stuff from God. It's that we get God, that we get a relationship with God, that we engage with him. Now, yes, he gives us loads of good gifts. Of course he does. But that's not the gospel that you get stuff from him. It's that you get to engage with him, that you uh, get to be brought back into that relationship with him. But we, we recognize the tendency, if you're like me in your heart, to be the same as these farmers, like clinging onto the stuff and, and sort of turn our back on him. And we start ignoring messengers. And so we hear this power, we think, oh yeah, that's terrible. It's nothing like me. And then sort of try and avoid thinking about it too much. And then, like the tenants were, and like the religious leaders were, we're then faced with the son, Jesus. And then we've got a decision to make. That's what it all comes down to. Is Jesus going to be the son who you respect the authority? Is he going to be the cornerstone or is he going to be the stone that you reject? This parable is a warning. Now, there's great blessings on offer in the vineyard. Wine is a symbol in the Bible of blessing and joy. Like, we talk a lot, and I love to talk about like, the blessing and the joy of like, a life lived with Jesus. The best possible life for anybody in any situation. I believe that. I like talking about that stuff. I don't really like talking about the warnings so much because it's a warning to me as well. There's brilliant stuff when you're relying, when you're built on the cornerstone, when you're rejoicing in the authority of the Son, when you're carrying out the... Uh, the role that he's given you, you'll find life that was truly meant to be. But, we've got to listen to this warning here. It's the same warning for us as it was for the tenants, for the, for the, the religious leaders that were listening. That if we're doing that, we're going to receive the, 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 the just outcome, the, the punishment that our behaviour deserves. Described here as a wretched end, or crushed, or broken to pieces. None of the crowd was in doubt when Jesus asked at what the what the tenants deserved. It's the same for us. If we reject it, like we won't, we're not in doubt. Like that's what we, we'll get what we deserve. God's offer of life is wide open to everyone. 
There'll be people in the vineyard enjoying their work and right relationship with the owner. And there'll be people who have rejected that. And that's the choice that we've got. What do we do when we recognise ourselves as those, just the same as those greedy, guilty tenants? Well, the good news in this warning is that we are in the situation that the tenants were in as the sun's approaching. The sun came, they made their decision to reject him, and then there was a judgment approaching for them. Well, the sun sort of stands before us now. Jesus stands before us now. What are we going to do? The tenants had a choice there. The sun's come along. What are we going to do? The religious leaders had a choice. He's the sun. Like, what are we going to do? And in both of those examples, they continue to go down the same path of rejecting God's authority. That's the choice that we've got now. We stand before him guilty, but we have the chance to receive his gift of grace. He's been unbelievably patient with us, like we see in that story. And he sent his son. There's forgiveness to be found in him if we acknowledge that we have behaved like those tenants. If we relinquish our attempts to climb on the throne and, and take his place. And the good news is that the son, Jesus, willingly died. He was willingly crushed so that we can be free from that judgment that we deserve. The cornerstone was crushed so that we don't have to be. And so I just want to leave, like, as Ben said when we started on these uh, parables, sometimes you can try and, like, sort of explain them too much, and really we need to just hear the story and, like, try and respond to it. So we just want to listen to the, the warning that the story gives, recognize ourselves as the tenants with Jesus standing before us, and just think, well, what's our response? So I'm just going to give you a moment to uh, reflect on that. So let's just do that now in silence.